Good morning. All right, welcome to Calvary Chapel Iwakuni. Great to be here with you guys. This week we pick back up our study through the New Testament, book by book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And this morning we're going to be starting a portion of Scripture that is commonly referred to as the pastoral epistles. Okay, the books of First and Second Timothy and the book of Titus are singled out amongst all the other New Testament writings as letters that were unique in their address to two men that served as pastors of local churches. Timothy served uh, as a pastor in the city of Ephesus. We'll talk more about that later. Uh, And Titus was a pastor on the island of Crete. And while these books may be called the pastoral epistles, uh, and they are addressed to pastors, uh, that doesn't mean that these letters aren't for all of us. Okay, these letters are not meant to be for pastors only. Uh, The truth found within these letters is vital to the whole church. And it's important that the church understand what God wants from his pastors and what you should be looking for in a pastor. I think this is especially true for so many of you who are constantly being uprooted and uh, from where you've been planted and you've been forced to find a new church every couple of years, every two or three years, you're having to find a new place to worship and you have to check out maybe a couple different churches and you need to pray and sense, okay, God, where are you leading me? Where do you want me to plug in and where do you want me to put our roots down? And so that can be difficult. And so you need to know how to find a good church, a church that looks to follow the principles that are laid out in these letters of 1 and 2 Timothy and in the letter to Titus. You need to know what pastors are called to do, what their primary functions are in the church. Because if you don't know what to be looking for, well, then you can easily be led astray and and find yourself in a place that's just less than ideal for you and your family. And so these letters, they are for all of us, though they are called the pastoral epistles, okay? And today we're going to start by doing an introduction of the first pastoral epistle. It's the letter of 1 Timothy. Now, if you've been here at Calvary for a while, you know that I like to start off each book by looking at and noting a lot of the background information involved in each book. I find that it helps to set the stage for the rest of the study. It allows us to understand the overall context of the book, the particular flow of the letter and the ministry that's taking place. And so uh, that's what we're going to be doing today. We're going to be doing an introduction to the book of 1 Timothy, which will give a, uh, have us looking at a number of different verses throughout the New Testament as we try to gather all, as much information as we can. And then we're going to cover the introduction in the book of 1 Timothy, uh, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Okay? And so the title of our study this morning is going to simply be A True Son in the Faith. <clears throat> A true son in the faith. And our text, as I mentioned, simply going to be 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, just to kind of get us going. So if you have your Bible with you this morning, go ahead, open it up to the book of 1 Timothy. Uh, 1 Timothy, it's a smaller book in the New Testament, comes after 1 and 2 Thessalonians, before 2 Timothy and Titus. Hopefully you know where it's at. And then once you're there, I'd like to invite you all to rise to your feet in honor of God and His holy word. <clears throat> I'm going to uh, read the opening introduction uh, to this letter uh, from my Bible. I'm reading from the New King James Version. Uh, I want to encourage you guys, do your best to follow along in your own Bible, whatever translation you may be reading from. And so 1 Timothy 
chapter 1, verse 1, opens with the following. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God our Savior and the Lord Jesus Christ, our hope to Timothy, a true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this morning and the opportunity to start a new study in a new book, and I pray that uh, everyone is excited just to start this new study and um, to get into a letter that is very important for us as a church, um, and it's got some stuff in there that uh, Kevin made mention of, just some, some weird stuff that probably uh, might shake us up a bit, and so Lord, I just pray you prepare our hearts, that you prepare our minds, that we might just receive all that your Spirit desires to say to us, to teach us. Um, and Lord, as we look more to do an introduction of backgrounds and trying to put all the, the information together, I pray that you'd lead us and guide us. And that even in the background uh, information that we gather, Lord, that there would still be application for us uh, to walk away with this morning. Lord, we don't want to just come and, and have an academic study and fill our heads with knowledge, Lord. We want to uh, take that knowledge, we want to take your truth, and we want to apply it to our lives. And so lead us and guide us, we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may have a seat. As I mentioned, before we dive into our verse-by-verse, verse 1 and 2 uh, study this morning, I'm going to share with you just uh, some overview of sorts, share some background information regarding the letter that we know of as 1 Timothy, and we'll do so by asking the basic question words of our text, okay, uh, the who, what, when, where, why, and how of the epistle of 1 Timothy. And if you uh, have a study Bible this morning, okay, um, if you've got really one of them really thick ones. Uh, usually they'll have this, a lot of this information at the front of your Bible studies and kind of lays out a lot of this background information. So some of this might be uh, just reinforcement to what you've already heard or what you know. But um, if you don't have one of the luxuries of, of a big, thick study Bible, hopefully this content will help us just understand the, the flow and, and what's going on at the time of this writing and what uh, ministry was like during this time. And so uh, we're going to spend a good amount of time laying out all those details so that it will prepare us for the, what the Lord has in store for us over the next couple of months as we make our way through First uh, Timothy. So we're going to begin by asking a few simple questions, uh, and we always like to start with simple questions, uh, and who is always easy to, to answer, okay? So who wrote the epistle of First Timothy? Uh, who's the author? Some people might think, oh, it must be Timothy because it's got his name in it. That would be wrong, okay? It's not Timothy. Uh, this one is pretty easy. The author identifies himself in the very first word of the very first verse uh, that we read this morning. It's, it's none other than Paul the Apostle, okay? Now, I know that most of you are probably fairly familiar with who Paul is, but just in case there are any who are unaware, I, I do think it's important that we remind ourselves of who this man is. Paul, Paul the Apostle, uh, before he was known as Paul the Apostle, this man went by a different name. He went by the name of Saul of Tarsus, okay? And Saul of Tarsus was was not a very pleasant person to be around, okay? He was a really, really bad guy, 
okay? Uh, Saul was a Pharisee. He was actually a well-respected and admired Pharisee amongst the religious elite. He was an up-and-comer amongst that group, and he was a persecutor of the church. Okay? He tortured Christians, he imprisoned Christians, and even approved of the killing of Christians. He was there approving of the very first Christian martyr, Stephen, uh, recorded for us in the uh, book of Acts chapter 7. Okay? This man was greatly feared by Christians throughout the land. And yet God reached out and touched this man's life and completely changed him and used him to be the mouthpiece of God to the nations. One day while on his way to Damascus with papers in hand, granting him the authority to seize and arrest any suspected Christians, Paul or Saul of Tarsus, he had an encounter with the Lord. You may be familiar with it. It's in Acts chapter 9 that we read of that. The Lord appeared to him in a blinding light, and he spoke to him, asking him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul actually responded to this blinding light, and he said, Who are you, Lord? And Jesus said to him, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. We've looked at that term before, to kick against the goads. It speaks of a tool that was used by animal owners to prod their animals in the right direction. A goad was a pointed stick used to direct large beasts of burden. Sometimes they would try to go their own way, and their owner would simply reach out with their prod and goad them to a little bit to get them back on track. But sometimes the animals would kick against the goads, okay? and this would often lead to injury and harm to the animal, as they often would end up not just getting a, a poke, but could possibly even impale themselves by kicking against the goad. And the sense that we get from Jesus' words to Saul was that God was trying to direct him. God was trying to get his attention, trying to redirect him, if you will, but, but Saul kept fighting against the Lord. Call, Paul kept on fighting against the work of the Holy Spirit, drawing him to the Lord. And it was there that day on the road to Damascus that Saul surrendered to the Lord. And God later called him as a chosen vessel of his to bear God's name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel, as described in Acts chapter 9, verse 15. Paul would be sent out by the Lord on three different missionary journeys throughout the land that are recorded for us in the book of Acts. As he went out, he did so preaching and teaching the gospel along the way, and God did an amazing work through him, bringing countless people to salvation and planting churches throughout the land. God used him to even pin 13 of the 26, 27, uh, New, excuse me, 27 uh, New Testament gospels. Okay, 14 if you give them Hebrews. Some people say he did write Hebrews. Other people say not so sure. For sure we know 13 of them he wrote. Uh, and so he wrote a, a good chunk uh, of the New Testament books that we have. Okay? What an incredible account of a life radically changed by Jesus Christ. He went from being a, a persecutor of the church to becoming a preacher uh, of the, to the church. One who was a, a hater of the truth to becoming a proclaimer of the truth. And, and you guys, I think as we look at Paul and we note his change, his radical transformation. I look at that and I think to myself, if God can do that for Paul, listen, then we have to understand that there's hope for all of us, okay? If God could take someone like Paul 
and touch his life radically and completely change a person and then use them for his glory and for his kingdom, well, then there's hope for each and every one of us. It doesn't matter what our past is. It doesn't matter, okay, what we've been through or what we used to be. Because in Jesus Christ, we are a new creation. And He can radically change and transform a life to be used for His kingdom. All we have to do is be open to the Lord, open to Him touching our lives and and softening our hearts to all that He desires to do in us and through us. And we too can be used mightily for His kingdom. And so be encouraged this morning, okay? If God could use a guy like Paul and change his life around, he can do the same in our lives as well. It doesn't matter what we've gone through, how bad we were, okay, what we used to be or what we used to do, okay? God is strong enough, powerful enough to do an amazing work and transformation in the life of someone that's yielded to him. Well, Let's continue on. We'll ask another who question, okay? To whom did Paul write this letter? Again, the answer to this one's quite simple. We're told in verse 2 that it was written to Timothy. Now, the name Timothy in the Greek is a compound word. It's the word timotheos. Timé means honor or respect or reverence or esteem. Theos means God. And so putting them together, we understand that Timothy's name means honoring God or one who honors God. Timothy's name was more than likely greatly influenced by his mother and grandmother, who are also mentioned in the Bible. Timothy's mother uh, was named Eunice. Okay? The scriptures tell us that she was a Jewish woman who believed in the Lord. Timothy's grandmother was named Lois, and she too was a genuine believer in the Lord, according to 2 Timothy chapter 1. Timothy was raised to know the scriptures from childhood. No doubt both Lois and Eunice played an intricate part in his upbringing, pouring into him the scriptures that he may fear the Lord and walk with him all of his days. Interestingly, we also note in Acts 16, where we are told about Timothy's mother being a Jewish believer, we're also told that his father was not Jewish, but rather that he was Greek. He was a Gentile. Many presume that Timothy's father was not a believer because of his Greek heritage and the fact that nothing else is mentioned about him in the scriptures. Some even speculate that perhaps Timothy's father had passed away during his upbringing or simply that he wasn't around by the time that he was introduced to Paul. Now, as we consider the the upbringing and the background of Timothy, I think it reminds us of the importance of a godly heritage in raising our children in the ways of the Lord. Timothy had family members that loved the Lord and they loved God's word. They shared it with him and they instructed him in the ways of the Lord, becoming a, a student of the scriptures himself. And God used that upbringing and training to greatly impact the kingdom of God. Timothy was a huge part of the ministry that Paul was involved in, and God used him mightily in helping Paul, both personally as well as ministerially. Moms and dads, okay, you have a wonderful privilege and an opportunity to pour into your children and to pass on to them a godly heritage. Okay, do not miss out on that privilege. Do not miss out on that opportunity. Take full advantage of it and prepare your children to walk in the ways of the Lord. 
Proverbs 22, verse 6 instructs us to train up a child in the way that he should go, and when he's old, he will not depart from it. Ephesians 6, 4 states, And you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and the admonition of the Lord. And so we see here, we have a responsibility, okay? We see the benefit, the impact of a godly heritage, how that impacted Timothy's life and how it set him up for success. And while we are noting Timothy and his life, I, maybe you're here today as a single parent, or maybe you're here today and you represent the only believer in your marriage. I want to encourage you as well to take comfort and to take courage from Timothy's life. Okay? He was raised most likely in a split home, a divided house, it would seem, perhaps even a single parent home for a good portion. And yet, that did not stop Eunice from ensuring that her son was raised to know the Lord and to know the scriptures. Okay? You can do it. Even if you are a single parent, even if you are the only believer, okay, God is with you and he will empower you to do that which he's called you to do, to give and to pass on that godly heritage to your children. And so don't give up, okay? God will give you what you need in order to faithfully raise your kids in his way. Well, let's move on to another of our question words, okay? Focusing in upon what, okay? What? Uh, and we'll start with asking the question, what is the main theme that's found in this epistle? Okay, what's the main topic that's discussed throughout it? Paul writes this book to instruct Timothy on what church life is to look like, and he does so by addressing two basic ideas. Okay, Paul basically writes to Timothy to inform him how to conduct the ministry of the church, and he writes to inform him on how to deal with people in the church. And so Paul writes about the ministry and the people of the church and how Timothy was to lead both. Okay, that's the main idea or topic. As he does so, he's going to tackle different issues related to the ministry and the people. He's going to tackle such things as false doctrine. He's going to look at the public worship service and how it was to be led and how it was going to uh, what was to look like. Yeah, he's going to look uh, at the importance of teaching the truth in opposition to that false doctrine. He's going to look at church leadership okay, and, and, and church discipline, okay, as well as you know, how to deal with different groups of individuals, those who are widows in the church. How do we minister best to them? To those who are wealthy in the church, what kind of instructions do we have for them? And so Paul's going to tackle all of these issues in the book of 1 Timothy. Now, another good what question we can ask ourselves is, what is the main verse of the book of 1 Timothy? Or perhaps we might say the theme verse. What's the theme verse? And I think the main verse or the theme verse that best captures the overall theme of the book is found in chapter 3. Okay, it's 1 Timothy chapter 3, uh, verse 15. There Paul writes, But if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. And so Paul writes to Timothy so that he would know how to conduct himself in the house of God, how the church is to be a pillar and a foundation of truth. 
Listen, if you're looking for a church to attend, one of the most important things to look for is the priority they place upon the truth, upon God's word. Jesus prayed to the Lord in John chapter 17, requesting that God sanctify them, his disciples, his followers, by your truth. And then he says, your word is truth. Okay, John 17, 17. God's word is truth, and it is his word that works in us to sanctify us and to mold and shape us more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. And the church is to be a pillar. It is to be a foundation of truth. If a church does not build upon the truth of Scripture, it's building on sinking sand, and eventually it will crumble. It will fall. A church must prioritize and build upon the truth of the Scriptures. And this is something that Paul was wanting to encourage and exhort and establish for young Timothy as a pastor in the church. The significance and the importance of building upon the foundation of the Word of God. Now, we've answered the who. We've looked at the what of the epistle. Now let's turn to the when of the epistle, okay? When was the book written, okay? Well, the timing of 1 Timothy isn't as easy to date as some of the other epistles that Paul wrote. Many of Paul's other epistles that he wrote while on his various missionary journeys can be traced back to the book of Acts, We can read of when Paul was traveling to various places and when Paul mentions certain locations within his epistles. We can always simply look it up in the book of Acts and say, okay, well, when was he there? Oh, he was there during Acts chapter 19, or he was there during this time. And then we can easily kind of put that into an overall timeline and a calendar. So it's very easy to to date some of Paul's letters that um, were written during the time of the book of Acts, okay? But it would appear that the book of 1 Timothy was more than likely written after the book of Acts had already been completed. And so we can't necessarily look to the book of Acts to trace back to when Paul wrote this letter. Now, the book of Acts is believed to have covered up until about the year 62 A.D. Okay, that's based upon the fact that many historians place Paul's first trial in Rome to the year 62 A.D. And the book of Acts ends with Paul waiting the conclusion of that trial. Okay, and so the earliest date we could say that this book was written would most likely be 62 A.D. after Paul's first Roman imprisonment and after the conclusion of the events spoken of in the book of Acts. Most people believe that Paul probably wrote 1 Timothy sometime between the years 62 and 63 A.D., okay? making it one of the oldest of Paul's letters, okay? Titus and 2 Timothy, uh, the other pastoral epistles, uh, are the only letters believed to be uh, later, not necessarily older, later. Evidently, they would be earlier, uh, yeah, newer, excuse me, uh, but yeah, 2 Timothy and Titus are the only ones that were written after 1 Timothy. And so we're going from our, our study of Paul's letters to the church in Thessalonica, some of his first letters ever written, to some of his oldest letters ever written as we jump into 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. So that's a pretty big jump we're going to make from going from Thessalonians to Timothy. All right, let's turn now to the where questions, and we can ask two of them. First of all, we want to know where was Paul when he wrote this letter? 
Okay, the answer to this is very easy to know, for Paul tells us in the opening chapter of this letter that he had gone to Macedonia. Okay, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3 tells us that. Macedonia was a large Roman province that was located upon the northern area of the Grecian peninsula. Paul spent a, a good amount of time preaching in this area and establishing a number of churches there, such as the Church of Philippi, uh, the Church of Thessalonica. There was also a church in the city of Berea. These were all major cities in the region of Macedonia. Paul first visited these areas and started the churches there during his second missionary journey. He visited them upon his third missionary journey, and it would appear, based upon what he writes here in 1 Timothy, that he visited them again, perhaps upon a fourth missionary journey that is not recorded for us in the book of Acts, and it's only alluded to in other portions of Scripture. There's a few different times Paul alludes to wanting to travel to different places. He wants to go to Spain and do something. A lot of people believe that he did that. He went to Spain, uh, and so upon, based upon the idea that he went on a fourth missionary journey after the conclusion of the book of Acts, visiting a number of the churches that he'd already established, but also going and doing some new work in Spain. So that's kind of interesting to consider, okay? Another good where question to ask is where Timothy was when he received the letter. We've already kind of noted this, but again, this is an easy one to answer because, again, we're told in chapter 1, verse 3, Paul writes about him leaving for Macedonia and how Timothy was to remain in Ephesus. And so Timothy was in the city of Ephesus. Ephesus was probably the biggest province in Asia Minor at that time. Uh, Asia Minor is what we consider uh, located in modern-day Turkey. Um, I think they may have tried to change their name. Uh, it's not Turkey anymore, but I think people still call it Turkey. But um, anyways, that area, okay, that was Asia Minor uh, back in the first century. It was known as Asia Minor. Um, it's believed that the city uh, population in Ephesus was around 300,000 people during the first century. Ephesus was a very special place for Paul. He spent more time in the city of Ephesus than any other city during his missionary travels. Paul spent nearly three years in the city of Ephesus. And we primarily read about his ministry in this city in Acts chapter 19, but we're also given a description of the ministry there in the book of 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 8 and 9, we read of how Paul's travel plans, he wanted to go to Corinth, but was not able to because of what was going on in Ephesus. He wrote this in 1 Corinthians 16. He says, But I will tarry in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a great and effective door has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. God had opened a huge door of ministry and opportunity there in the city of Ephesus that Paul could not walk away from. Paul's first visit to the city was a quick one. Uh, on the back end of his second missionary journey, Paul stopped by in the city of Ephesus on his way back to Jerusalem. We're told that he entered the synagogue, he reasoned with the Jews, and they actually asked him to stay longer, but he would not consent to the request, for he knew he needed to get back to Jerusalem. But he did promise to return to the city, and he left the city 
but when he left, he left a couple by the name of Priscilla and Aquila to help the new believers there in the city of Ephesus. Later on, Priscilla and Aquila would come across another gentleman by the name of Apollos, who was also going and teaching, but he only knew about the baptism of John, and so Priscilla and Aquila, they came alongside him, and they instructed him further in the ways of the Lord, and God was using them in the city of Ephesus while Paul uh, returned to Jerusalem. But by the time Paul returned on his third missionary journey, it was ripe for a mighty move of God. The harvest was ripe. It was ready to be gathered in for the Lord. And a quick read through Acts 19 shows us some of the things God was doing in and through Paul in the city of Ephesus. We don't have time to look at all the details. Uh, if you want to, you can read through Acts 19, just to get a sense of what life was like in the city of Ephesus uh, during this time. But Paul was going around, he was baptizing people, he was teaching in synagogues prior to relocating to an education facility that was made available to him. He continued teaching in that school of sorts for two years. God worked unusual miracles through Paul during this time as people were being healed from sicknesses and disease and demon possession, not only through the laying on of hands by Paul, but also through uh, handkerchiefs and aprons that had been worn by Paul. During the day, he was a tent maker, and so he wore uh, an apron to work. He was a craftsman, and people would take those, you know, a sweaty handkerchief from wiping the sweat from his hard day's work, and they would take that and bring it to their, their sick family members, their sick friends, and people were getting healed. They had faith that if they could just have Paul's handkerchief or just touch his apron, that that would be enough to, to be saved and God and to be healed, excuse me. And God was doing just an incredible work in the city of Ephesus. And news of Paul's ministry was spreading, having a great impact. Many came to Paul. They believed, confessing their sins. Even those who were caught up in the occult, they came and they surrendered their life to the Lord through the ministry of Paul in that place. Magicians who dabbled in sorcery, they came and they brought their books of magic and they burned them in the sight of all. Again, the word of the Lord, it, it just grew mightily in that place. It prevailed. But as Paul mentioned, there was this great effective door, but there was also many adversaries. Okay? Not everyone was happy about the success of Paul's ministry. There was a certain silversmith who made a living off of selling false idols fashioned after the goddess Diana, and he stirred up trouble for Paul in the city. He actually riled the people up so much that it started a riot within the local theater. And so while God was doing some incredible work in and through Paul there in Ephesus, the enemy was also at work, causing all sorts of problems for Paul and the ministry this was a huge city. Yeah, there was a, a lot of Gentile influences there and pagan practices. You know, the Temple of Artemis, okay, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world was there. Okay, I know you CC homeschoolers sing that, you know, ancient wonders of the uh, seven wonders of the ancient world. Never mind, I won't sing it to you. Um, anyways, if you got a CC kid, you know what I'm talking about, okay? Uh, Artemis was the Greek goddess who was known as Diana to the Romans, okay? She was believed to be the goddess of fertility, thus her worship often involves sensual or sexual acts. This was a place of great wealth, of great idolatry. It was a place filled with corruption, and yet God was doing an amazing work there, okay? Later on, after Paul's release from prison, it would appear he revisited the city with Timothy, and then he left Timothy there to contend for the faith, 
to overcome some false doctrine that had crept its way in while Paul was away and to help lead and guide the church while Paul traveled to check in on the other churches across the Aegean Sea in Macedonia. And so think about that. This is a huge city okay, filled with money, okay, entertainment, sensualness. Okay? I, I kind of think of it like the Las Vegas of, the, of that day, right? Just sin city. And you got this young pastor named Timothy, and Paul says, okay, Timothy, take care of the things in here. I'm going to go check in on the other churches. Right? That's the, the setting for the book of 1 Timothy and Paul's writing to Timothy as he does ministry in Ephesus. Okay? Now, let's turn to our why question. Okay? We'll look at a why question it's an, uh, as it pertains to this epistle. And I believe a great why question to ask about this epistle of 1 Timothy is why is it so important to us? Uh, first of all, because it's the Word of God, right? Um, we believe it's the inspired Word of God, and so it's important to us. But besides that, okay, why else is this book so important to us? Okay? And I believe that this book is so important to us because it lays down important principles and guidelines for pastors and church leaders in dealing with both issues of the church and the people in the church. And any time... We are dealing with issues of the church and people in the church, okay? We need to make sure we are following the biblical principles that are laid out for us in God's Word, okay? It all needs to be based upon God's Word, okay? Not on church tradition, okay? Not on, you know, what our denomination may say or not say or think, not upon what culture says, not upon what, you know, the society uh, says. Okay, we do not base those, uh, uh, we don't base our principles and our guidelines upon any of those things, okay, but we must base it upon God's Word, okay? The Bible must be our final authority. It is what must determine our principles and our practices. We must adhere to it and follow it. And 1 Timothy becomes for us really an instruction manual, an instruction manual for church leadership and how to deal with church issues, how to deal with people in the church. It's an extremely important letter for us to study and to understand as we continue to deal with the ministry of the church and people in the church even today, okay? Because a lot of the things that were happening during that day, the, the issues with the church and, and the people in the church, listen, we're still dealing with those things today. And so we need to take the principles, the guidelines that we read of in the book of 1 Timothy, and we need to apply them to the church today. Now, our sixth and final question word is how and quite simply, we can just ask the question, how is the book of 1 Timothy divided, or how is it outlined? And there are actually a few different ways you can divide this book up, depending on how, you, how detailed you want to go. Uh, a very simple way to divide it would be into three sections. Okay? The first section deals with instructions for teaching the church in chapter 1. Then the sec second section deals with instructions for people in the church. In chapters 2 and 3. And then finally, in the third section, it deals with instructions for the leadership of the church in chapters 4, 5, and 6. 
Okay? And so that's a very simple way to look at it if you want to just break it up into three different groups. Another way to divide the book is based upon various charges that Paul gives to Timothy at the conclusion of each section. Okay, if you read through the book of 1 Timothy, which we will, but if you wanted to go home and read through it, you'll see at the very end of chapter 1, at the end of chapter 3, at the end of chapter 4, end of chapter 5, and at the end of chapter 6, Paul gives a charge to uh, Timothy and what he's to do. And so a lot of people like to outline the book based upon these charges that uh, Paul gave to Timothy. So in chapter 1, he charges Timothy concerning doctrine. In chapters 2 and 3, he charges Timothy concerning public worship. Okay, in the public worship service. In chapter 4, he charges him concerning false teachers. In chapter 5, Paul charges Timothy concerning church discipline. And then in chapter 6, he charges him concerning pastoral duties. And so that's another way that we can outline the book of Timothy, a little bit more detailed than the first way. Either way, um, we get an idea of what we're getting into here as we step into the book of 1 Timothy. And so there you have it. Okay, that's all the background information I want to share for you guys uh, in our introduction to the book. Now let's turn our attention to the introduction in the book found in verses 1 and 2. Okay, take a look at these verses one more time with me. Verse 1 says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God our Savior and the Lord Jesus Christ, our hope, to Timothy, a true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. Here in the opening two verses, we're introduced to two people, Paul and Timothy. And so we're going to take a look at Paul first and what it says about him. We're told here that Paul was an apostle of Jesus Christ. The word apostle simply means a delegate or messenger or ambassador. Okay? It is one who's sent out on a mission or one who's sent out with a message to deliver. As we already discussed, Paul had a miraculous encounter with the Lord on the road to Damascus. There on the road, he surrendered his life to the Lord, and God called him into the ministry. Paul actually recounts the Lord's words to him um, to King Agrippa II in Acts chapter 26. Paul quotes the Lord, Jesus Christ, speaking to Paul. He says, I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. And so Paul was sent out. He was sent out by the Lord to the Gentiles, and that makes him an apostle, okay? One sent out on a mission, one sent out with a message, okay? His message was the message of the gospel to the Gentiles. Now, when we hear the word apostle, okay, most of us often think of the 12 apostles, right? Uh, Jesus's 12 disciples were first called apostles back in Luke's gospel in chapter 6, verse 13. Even Judas, okay, he was numbered as one of the 12 as an apostle uh, in Luke 6.13. After Judas betrayed the Lord, the other 11 apostles gathered together. They selected Matthias to replace Judas as one of the 12, okay? And some try to say that the 11 apostles perhaps jumped the gun here in selecting Matthias as the 12th apostle, and that they should have waited for Paul because he was supposed to be the 12th apostle of the church. Well, you guys, I just want to tell you, 
That is an extremely difficult thing to prove biblically, okay? I think too many people get caught up on who the 12 apostles were, and they end up missing out on the fact that the Bible actually lists out all sorts of apostles. apostles excuse me. You see, if you read through the New Testament, you will come to find a number of people were called apostles, okay? A number of people were sent out by the Lord on a mission with a message, okay? Barnabas is said to be an apostle. Andronicus and Junius are apostles. Apollos is named an apostle. James, Jesus's brother and leader of the Jerusalem church, was identified as an apostle. Sylvanus, who's all more commonly referred to as Silas and Timothy, okay, were mentioned as apostles during our study of the book of 1 Thessalonians. We looked at that. There are even unnamed apostles that are mentioned in the book of 2 Corinthians. You see, Paul was an apostle, okay, and it doesn't matter if he was supposed to be the 12th apostle, okay, he may have been the 15th or the 16th apostle, okay? It really isn't that important, okay? And now, as we consider the work and the ministry of an apostle, that's why a lot of people like to get kind of hung up on that and say, oh, the, uh, there was the apostles and, and what they did, the 12, and, and that's limited to just the first century church, and there are no more apostles like that. And I understand it doesn't fit the description of, uh, of uh, found in Acts chapter 1 of what an apostle could be. But when we look at the general idea of an apostle, one sent out on a mission, with a message, okay? Paul was an apostle, okay? And, and I think the important thing for us is not to know if he, was whether, if he was the 12th one or the 13th or the 15th or the 18th or whatever when he was. That's not the important thing for us to know, okay? The important thing for us to note is that he was sent out by the Lord with a message. And with that understanding in mind, I think it's important that we look at ourselves as being apostles as well to understand that we have been sent out into the world around us to serve as apostles, to serve as ambassadors for the Lord, to be His messengers to the world around us. Do you see yourself as an apostle sent out by the Lord? Do you consider the places that you go as opportunities to testify of the Lord and to represent Him to the people that you come in contact with? Do you use those opportunities to be ambassadors for Christ? I hope you do, okay? I hope you realize that just as Paul was called and sent out with a message to proclaim, that so too you have been called and sent out with a message to proclaim the wonderful gospel message of Jesus Christ. And so may we all be faithful apostles of Christ, faithful ambassadors of Christ, representing Him and bringing His message to the world around us. Now, something else worth noting is the fact that Paul speaks of how he was sent in our opening verse, okay? He says that he was sent by the commandment of God, our Savior, and the Lord Jesus Christ. This phraseology is unique to Paul's letter to Timothy and Titus. In nearly all of his other epistles, when he identifies himself as an apostle, he speaks of how it was by the will of God. But here, it is by the commandment of God. I want to ask you the question, do you realize that you too have been sent out by the command of God? Not so sure? (laughs) Read with me Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20. There Jesus says the following. He says, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, 
baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. We call these verses the Great Commission. Right? And it applies to each and every one of us. We've all been commissioned. We've all been commanded okay, to go out and to proclaim the message. Okay? We call these verses the Great Commission. But I want you guys to note something very peculiar. Okay? The interesting thing about the Great Commission, our commandment, okay, is that the command is singular. If you look at the verbs in the Great Commandment, okay, the command, there's only one verb. It's written in it as a command. And the command is to make disciples. Okay? To make disciples. It isn't to go. Okay? That's not the command. Okay? It isn't to baptize or to teach. Those words are actually written as participles. They describe how we do the action of making disciples. How do we make disciples? By going, by teaching, by baptizing. We go. Okay? Whether that be <clears throat> down the hall to our family, down the street to our neighbor, downtown to our community or across the globe. We go. We go and we can, we can fulfill the Great Commission and make disciples anywhere that God has us go. We teach. Hey, we teach our children. We teach our family. We teach our friends. We teach our brothers and sisters in the Lord. And anyone else, we have opportunity to do so. And we baptize Okay, those who come to faith in Christ, that they may make a public outward demonstration of the personal inward transformation that God has done. And so we are called to serve as apostles, as ambassadors sent out by the commandment of God. Now, one more thing worth noting is what Paul has. At the very end of verse 1, Paul mentions the hope that he has. Many in today's world are wandering around aimlessly without any sort of hope. They have no hope because they've been placing their hope in all sorts of things that will never satisfy and people who will always let them down. But our hope is in Jesus Christ. He is our hope, as Paul speaks of here at the end of verse 1. Our hope is in Christ, who will satisfy the longings of an empty and broken heart. Christ will never let us down. He will never fail us. He will never leave us nor forsake us. And so our hope in the Lord is what we cling to. Okay? Our hope in the Lord is a living hope. A hope not only for the eternal, but for every day between now and then. May we place our hope in Jesus Christ. Now, let's turn our focus, our attention upon Timothy. As we do, I want to note the relationship Paul had with Timothy. Paul referred to Timothy as a true son in the faith. Now, this too was a unique description reserved only for Timothy and Titus. These two pastors that Paul writes to in the pastoral epistles were true sons in the faith. Now, what does that mean, you may be wondering? Well, let me tell you what it doesn't mean, okay? It doesn't mean that they were the only people who came to faith through Paul's ministry, okay? It doesn't mean that they were the only true converts while all the others were false, okay? I think what is meant by the saying true sons in the faith is the idea that these two really caught the vision that Paul had for the church, they were in tune with Paul's heart for the ministry of the church. He taught them. He trained them. He set for them an example. And they caught that vision that Paul had, and then they ran with it. Okay? And, and that's what made them true sons of the faith. And you know, I think about my own, my own experience in coming to the Lord. 
um, my pastor, uh, Rick Barnett, Calvary Chapel, Okinawa. Um, we used to live in the States together before we came to Japan. He shared the gospel with me. Uh, he discipled me. He trained me up in the ministry. He was an example for me to follow. And I, too, caught the vision of the ministry of God and the ministry that God had given to him and, and, and just to simply love on and feed God's sheep. You know, and it's a very simple vision, okay? I know a lot of churches have, you know, really elaborate vision statements. We don't have an elaborate vision statement. I'm sorry, okay? It's a very simple one, okay? But I do believe it's one that's founded upon the Scriptures. Because we read when Peter was commissioned by the Lord there on the lakeside in John 21, Jesus said to Peter three different times he asked him, do you love me? And he responded, yes, you know I love you. And he responded to him by saying, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. Okay? Two things involve feeding, one involves tending. Okay? Feed my little ones, okay? feed my grown-ups, and tend to them. Take care of them. Be compassionate towards them. Love them. Okay? That is what Peter was called to do as he led the church. And I believe it's a very simple but a very effective vision okay? to love God's people and to give them a steady diet of God's word. Okay? It isn't elaborate, but it is effective. And I believe it's one that God calls us to all take part in. I want to encourage you guys that you might catch that same vision, that you would come here you know, wanting to love on some little sheep, okay? To love on the lambs, to feed the lambs, Lord, uh, to help feed the sheep, okay? To encourage one another, to edify one another, to build one another up, to care for one another, okay? To love one another, to have compassion for each other. That's my hope, okay? That you would catch that vision here as well. Now, Next, I want to note the blessing Paul shared with Timothy. Paul shared three blessings with Timothy, extending to him the grace, mercy, and peace that comes from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's take these one by one, beginning with grace. Grace, you guys know, is God's, God's unearned and unmerited favor. It's the Greek word charis. Okay? Now, when it comes to grace, I think most of us realize and understand that our salvation and our place in heaven is based upon the grace of God. Okay, hopefully you know that. If you don't, you need to know that, okay? That's a foundational part of our faith, right? That we are saved by grace. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says that we are saved by grace. Um, by grace you've been saved through faith and not, not, that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. You see, there's no way for us to earn or merit our place in heaven. It is all a result of God's grace upon us, His unearned, unmerited favor simply being lavished upon us. And I think most of us would agree, and most of us would understand, yeah, you know, the importance of grace when it comes to salvation and our place in eternity. But what we sometimes fail to remember is that grace isn't just needed for our salvation. Grace is needed for everything, we are dependent upon the grace of God for everything in this life. Grace isn't just needed for eternal life, but for every moment of every day in life. Okay? God's grace is the resource that we need to make it through all the aspects of life. His grace enables us and empowers us to do all that God has called us to do. 
It's Titus chapter 2 that tells us that it is only by the grace of God that we can live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. You see, it is, uh, according to the book of Acts, it is God's grace that builds us up and edifies us. Romans 1.5 says that it's by grace that we live obedient lives of faith. Romans 5.2 says that it's the grace of God that causes us to stand in our faith. 2 Corinthians tells us that it is the grace of God that causes us to abound in thanksgiving to the glory of God. The author of Hebrews states that it is by grace that we are able to serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. You see, church family, we need God's grace for everything. (laughs) And God's grace is made available to us through faith in His Son, Jesus Christ. So simple. So wonderful. Praise God that He has made His grace available to us that we can do all that he's asked us to do. Because without God's grace, we would be helpless okay, and hopeless. Now, the next thing that Paul mentions is mercy. God's mercy, it's the word eleos. It speaks of compassion and pity. We often say that grace is getting what you don't deserve. Okay, That's grace, getting what you don't deserve. And then we have justice. Justice is getting what you do deserve. Okay, we might say justice has been served when you get what's coming to you. When we think of the word mercy, mercy is not getting that which you do deserve. Okay, not getting what you do deserve. God's mercy is upon us as he is patient with us. He's long-suffering and compassionate toward us, not giving to us what we deserve, the penalty of our sins. Because of our faith in Christ, His mercy is upon us, and we don't get what we deserve. Now, I want to note something that I personally found very comforting myself as a pastor. Okay? And while this point maybe just applies to me, I, it's important enough to me that I wanted to share it with you guys. Okay? Paul's greeting in every single one of his other epistles to all the churches, okay, to the other people, okay, outside of Timothy and Titus, Paul's greeting in all the other epistles is always the same. It's grace and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. Grace and peace, grace and peace, grace and peace, over and over. You can look it up, okay, all of his letters that he wrote, grace and peace. But here in 1 Timothy and in 2 Timothy, And in the book of Titus, okay, the three pastoral epistles, Paul adds mercy. He's writing to these pastors, and he wants them to know the blessings of God's grace and peace, but he also understands the great need for mercy to be upon them as pastors. Lord, have mercy on these pastors of yours, because they need it. Okay, as pastors and teachers, we are held to a higher standard. James speaks about how not many should become teachers, knowing that teachers shall receive a stricter judgment. As teachers, we are held accountable for how we lead others, how we instruct others in the faith. There is a great amount of pressure when it comes to being a teacher of God's Word. I don't ever want to say or do anything that would lead others to fall away from the Lord or to be stumbled in their faith. But the thing is, you guys, I'm just like all of the rest of you. Okay? Some people think, oh, you're a pastor. It's like, no. 
We're all down here, okay? I am a sinner in need of God's grace just like you. And I blow it, okay? And I blow it often, okay? You can ask my wife. She can tell you, okay? Please don't. (laughs) As a pastor, I appreciate the mercy of God and the fact that God continues to allow me to stand before you teaching the Word of God even though I fall so short on a daily basis. I praise God for His grace, and I praise God for His mercy, for getting what I don't deserve and not getting what I do deserve. And for me, that ministered to my heart, and I hope it ministers to yours as well. And if you want to be merciful towards me, I would appreciate that. (laughs) All right? Lastly, Paul mentions the peace of God. This speaks of the rest, the tranquility and safety we have in Christ. Peace comes through Jesus Christ. He is our source of peace. Jesus said, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Not only does peace come through Jesus Christ, according to Ephesians, Jesus Christ himself is our peace. For he himself is our peace, Ephesians 2.14 opens up. Jesus is our peace. And many today are in need of the peace of God, and they are searching for it, thinking that they will acquire some sort of peace in life once they get certain things. They think that they'll have peace in life once they get that promotion, or once they move to a new location, or once they get that new job, or once they you know, get married, or once they have children, or once the children move out, you know, we'll finally have peace in the house again. Um, you know, you see that the world looks for and longs for peace and thinks that it will eventually come if they could just hold on long enough. But you will never find the kind of peace that satisfies a longing heart until you surrender your life to Jesus Christ. For God's peace can only be found in an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. You won't find it anywhere else. It's only in and through Him. May we all enjoy the grace, the mercy, and the peace of God throughout all our days. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank You so much for this morning. Just this introduction uh, to the book of 1 Timothy and and looking really at the introduction here in 1 Timothy. Lord, I know uh, we didn't get into a lot of... Uh, the verse-by-verse study, Lord, a lot of background information, but I pray that that just whets our appetite for you and for this study that we're going to be doing for the next um, several weeks, just getting into the book of 1 Timothy. And there's a lot of stuff in this book, Lord. I pray that you would prepare our hearts, uh, that you would prepare our minds, uh, our ears to receive all that you desire to say to us through this book. Lord, uh, even in this introduction, we realize there's some application that we can walk away with, Lord, that there's hope for each and every one of us. You used a guy like Paul, Lord, uh, Saul of Tarsus. You touched his life, radically changed him, made him new, and used him for your glory. Lord, you could do the same thing in us as well. And so, Lord, we thank you for the hope that we have in you. Lord, we thank you for your grace. Lord, we thank you that your grace has been made available to us through faith in your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for your mercy, God, your long-suffering, your compassion towards us, Lord, not giving to us what we truly deserve. Lord, we thank you for the peace that we have in you. And Lord, I pray that we'd walk in those blessings that we have through you, that we would walk 
in your grace, that we would walk in mercy, Lord, that we would walk in peace because of our faith in you, Lord, because of what you've done for us. And so, Lord, lead us and guide us. Again, I pray that you would just stir our hearts, give us a hunger for you, for your word, for what you have for us in this book. We give it to you. We give you this study these next few weeks as we continue to march our way through verse by verse. We look forward to all that you have for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.